people don't come with instruction manuals, yet most people manage to navigate social situations relatively easily. At least it seems that way. And if you're neurodivergent, especially if you're on the autistic spectrum, it can feel like everyone else got a copy of the manual and you never did. Neurodiversity is something we're only still getting to grips with and it doesn't begin and end with autism. More and more people are wondering about seeking a diagnosis. For example, I was diagnosed with ADHD a couple of years ago and it's helped me get a much better understanding of what makes me tick and where my strengths lie. In today's episode, I'm speaking with neurodivergence coach Matthew Bellringer. If you identify as neurodivergent and you want to learn how to capitalise on your strengths and deal better with the costs... Or if you're wondering whether getting a diagnosis would help or hinder you, or you just want to support and benefit from people whose brains work differently, then get comfy and let's dive in. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high stress, high stakes jobs. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. I'm Matthew Bowringer. My work is all about exploring and sharing how everyone can benefit from neurodiversity. I'm particularly interested in the benefits that neurodiversity can bring for individuals and for society and for organizations. My focus is therefore a little bit different on the normal deficit-based stuff. So it's all about, actually, what do we get with the way that different brains work? I have a, a kind of typical neurodivergent mixed background of um, tech, research, innovation, psychology, and communications, which has led me to, to, to doing this particular work. And I'm also an autistic ADHDer. So much there to unpick, Matthew. Loads of stuff in your background, some sort of labels, well, labels and diagnoses yourself. And I really wanted to get you on the podcast today to talk to people in high stress, high stakes jobs, a lot of whom I think may be neurodivergent themselves. Uh, I know that in medicine, we have a, a high incidence of what I think you call twice exceptional people. So we'll talk about that in a minute. And what'd be really nice to know is a little bit about what people who are twice exceptional particularly struggle with and how they might approach not being stressed, not being burnt out in a bit of a different way to other people, perhaps. I'd love to start off 
just by asking you, Matthew, you do lots of work with people who are neurodivergent. You're neurodivergent yourself. And just before the podcast, I said to you, well, do we say neurodivergent or neurodiverse? So neurodiversity is was, was coined by uh, sociologist Judy Singer um, in the late 90s to describe the normal variation amongst the entire human population in the way that our neurology works. So it, it's, it's that neurology varies quite a lot between different people, between different and changes over uh, as we age and all of these different things. And that's part of the, the normal diversity of human experience. It's a way of questioning the approach that says anything that differs from a very kind of strictly established standard is necessarily disordered or dysfunctional. That's not to say that it completely excludes that. And I, I think one of the, you know, neurodiversity can, can sometimes be interpreted to mean, well, then no one has any problems and absolutely not what we're talking about, but that we should be kind of working with that normal variation of how we all think and feel and experience the world. And most people think and feel and experience the world mostly the same, or mostly similarly. It's not that everyone experiences it exactly the same, but these things kind of fall onto a normal distribution. They fall onto a, fall onto a bell curve. And if you sit significantly outside of that bell curve, if you sit towards, towards the edges um, of various different traits, various different kind of experiences, that can introduce some specific problems. And we, uh, we've kind of started to use the term neurodivergent to describe people who sit outside, significantly outside of that normal experiencing. And I say normal in the sense of statistically most common experiencing of the world. So my kind of, my personal functional definition of, of neurodivergent is someone who who significantly and pervasively experiences the world differently to most other people around them. You don't necessarily need a diagnosis, though there are a lot of categories, diagnostic categories that are associated with being neurodivergent. Um, these are sometimes called neuro-minorities, specific neuro-minorities. So for example, autism, ADHD, or dyslexia, uh, the, the, these particular kind of ways of associated with a certain neurology lead to a kind of cluster of common experience um, or more common experience. That's really helpful. So basically everybody is neurodiverse, but some people are further away from the, the commonality than others, and that would be neuro, neurodivergent. And then you've got these clusters of people that have fairly similar neurodivergences, which are these sort of minorities, that you, neuro minorities that you talked about. That's helpful. And when we've chatted before, I know you've said to me that you think there are quite a high quantity of people who are in these neuro minorities in some of these really high stress occupations, such as medicine, for instance. Is, is there a reason for that, do you think? Absolutely. I'd like to touch on um, this idea of twice exceptional that you mentioned as well, that's, uh, that that's, I think is a really helpful one. There is a cultural assumption that being neurodivergent comes with intellectual disability. That 
isn't true. It just isn't true. Sometimes some of the conditions come with intellectual disability. Sometimes they don't. Being twice exceptional is to be neurodivergent and or creatively and or intellectually gifted. So it's to actually be kind of a higher level of certain ability than we'd normally see in the population. Until recently, that whole category hasn't even attracted diagnosis, partly because the diagnostic criteria are entirely deficit-based and are relatively unsophisticated um, as, a, as, a, as a really differential diagnostic tool compared to a lot of other things. And so we, we kind of overlooked a load of experiences. And one of the big experiences is, yeah, people who, who are highly intellectually able, extraordinarily sometimes, and yet also have specific difficulties. And very often those abilities make people a really good fit for certain professions. And there are a range of different kind of things that come with neurodiversity that lead people to being really able to cope in certain environments, being really skilled in certain environments, wanting to work in certain environments that perhaps most other people wouldn't. I think the best example of this, you know, and, and it's not that medicine as an entire body skews in one specific neurodivergent way, but that within the practice of medicine, there are niches that suit the ways of thinking and being and working that different neuro-minorities possess. I think the obvious example of this is emergency medicine and the chaos of an A&E department on a Friday night. And that that takes a certain sort of skill set to just to be able to cope, to navigate, and to actually kind of enjoy. I, having spoken to people who work in, work in, there's a kind of, sometimes feels like a slightly perverse enjoyment, but an enjoyment of that kind of, you know, the intensity of that. And that's associated with ADHD traits in particular, the, the ability to kind of cope with all of those things happening at once and to enjoy and to actually seek it out. But the flip side of that, if you think about someone kind of skewing in that direction, thinking of a specialized neurology for being able to navigate that kind of chaos, it comes with a relatively, potentially with a reduced ability to do kind of procedural things particularly low, unstimulating procedural things like filling in forms. And it's not to say that everyone who is in these practices certainly has a clinically diagnosable condition, but might well share traits with people that do, and people who do have the condition might well do well in those specialisms. And it's not just medicine, is it? There's all sorts of you know specialities where you have to use your brain a lot for various things, or you have to respond quickly to emergencies, or you have to really get into the detail of stuff and think it through. And there's some things that you need to be able to interact with people a lot more than, than other people. Is there something about, you know, people that are in these positions of extreme responsibility for other people that predispose them to some types of neurodivergence in the first place? Well, I, I, I think there's, um, there isn't a generalized blanket, but there are some trends. One of the interesting things about a relatively understudied group of neurodivergent people is neurodivergent people who are particularly interested in other people. Now, that has been over 
partly because part of the diagnostic criteria for a lot of neurodivergent conditions is a lack of empathy. That criterion itself is problematic. It's actually that it's a lack of empathy for neurotypical people, for people who experience the world kind of in like most other people do. And those, um, those, those absences of empathy disappear when with other people of their neurotype or their neurominority or almost entirely. So this whole situation of being interested in people can often mask the stereotypical presentation of neurodiversity. And I think a lot of people who, who end up professionally interested in working with and for people, part of that drive comes from wanting to understand people on a more profound level in some way. A lot of neurodivergent people talk about missing a memo or not getting an instruction manual that other people seem to have got. And I think very often that desire to study and to understand if we're intellectually capable, it's one way of being like, oh, Oh, I can, I can, I can, I can figure it out. Then I can look it up in a textbook. I can understand it and then address that fundamental experiencing of the world that I'm, I'm not sure I understand how people work. Wow. That, that's interesting. Are there any specific, you know, superpowers that you would attribute to some people with particular conditions? For example, you know, I know that often people with ADHD really struggle with executive function, getting themselves organized, et cetera, et cetera. Their superpower is connecting ideas and responding really quickly and just being able to take things from over there and, oh, that would work there. And, you know, that is a real superpower. But then in other ways, the ADHD can be a real hindrance in, you know, actually getting stuff done. So, I mean, that's a really obvious one. What, what other superpowers have you observed in people that aren't perhaps quite so obvious? I tend to tend to avoid the word superpowers, um, partly because it's not anything supernatural. I think if we're using a metaphor, it's closer to the the kind of X-Men mutant powers that they <laughs> have this huge advantage, but they come with a cost. And, Use and power with a cost, love it. Okay, because because they 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 you know yeah. everything has a it's a plus and a minus. Um, we don't really get like abilities for free. We're trading, you know. It's it's a, a neurological trade of one thing for another thing, very often, um, or one strength for a relative weakness. But having said that, I mean the the, the kind of classic ones, yeah, the ones around creativity for ADHD. Uh, and, and, and it just a generalized ability to cope with and often enjoy relatively chaotic environments that can be overwhelming for other people. I'm not entirely sure whether that's just down to practice and the fact that we managed to generate quite a lot of chaotic environments. But one of the other strengths, actually, I've noticed is also quite a lot of project managers show ADHD traits, which seems counterintuitive. And I think this is the, the, the like one of the other ways that neurodivergent strengths can manifest is when we develop really good tools externally and ways of supporting everything. So if you need to develop things, people tell me I'm really, really organized. I don't experience myself as organized. I use a ton of tools around me and I'm pretty good at using them because I've used them for my entire life. And if I don't, I don't do anything. So that then means I've got this, this kind of organizational skill set in the outside world. So we can develop these skills that are kind of mitigations, really, 
and get very, very good at them. Thinking about autistic traits as well, which is the other, the other really big one that's associated with visualization ability very often, often sensory sensitivity in different ways. So a, a real attunement to the senses as well as a kind of a real joy in ordering things and having things in a certain arrangement. And what's interesting is for me, and the, the two combined lead to a very intense curiosity and a desire to learn all the time. And that itself can be a benefit, particularly for a generalist um, in a domain, because it's that ability to go outside of the boundaries. With neurodiversity, we often face quite significant challenges, social challenges, um, life challenges. And if we're fortunate and we have the developmental um, context and the internal capacity to develop a skill that mitigates them, that deals with them, we can end up with huge strengths in certain areas. But I mentioned that difficulty in empathy between generally neurotypical people and the neuro-minority. If you have strong reason to overcome that, you can overcome that. It's just a harder form of empathy. For me, my quick test for anyone, if they're wondering if they're hyper-empathetic, hyper -empathetic is um, empathetic overspill, which is when you have empathy for inanimate and non-sentient objects. So say, for example, you see a mug that you haven't used for a while and you think, you feel sorry for that mug because it must be feeling like it doesn't have a, you know, it, it, it's, it's not living its purpose anymore. Um, that That's an example of empathetic overspill. So it's, it's just as a quick idea, but the, it, it can manifest all sorts of different ways. And so you can see where these hyperadaptions develop. And the hyperadaptions can be huge strengths and huge superpowers. So only in as much as they're not completely obligate trauma-related responses, because sometimes they develop as a result of trauma. And if they are, then we, we, we struggle to moderate them and we use them all the time. And then we overuse them because this is one of the huge things. Any, any strength can be overused. And very often the, the most normal failure mode for anyone, neurotypical or neurodivergent, is that not that we operate in a domain of weakness, but we operate in a domain of strength long past its usefulness. That is ringing really true because I know that I have the ability to connect ideas and share ideas and see connections and see possibilities and all that, partly because of my own neurodiversity. And I know that when I'm talking to someone about ideas, I often talk to friends about new businesses that they want to set up and things like that. It's really good for a bit. And then I think I just overwhelm people with ideas, you know, so it starts off really good. It keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And, and eventually that person's like, oh my goodness, I'm exhausted. I can't listen anymore. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, I think this, this, this link links me really nicely to one of the other things that I'd like to, to mention actually, which, um, which is this concept of camouflaging or masking. So when we're neurodivergent, most neurodivergent people, particularly 2E people, twice exceptional people, tend to pick up the habits of getting by in a normal society, in behaving in ways that don't mark them out as different. And I think when people hear masking, it sounds like striving to make up a deficit. But particularly for this group, 
the largest part of the masking is in inhibition, is in holding back. So it becomes that not telling everyone about, like, you know, when, when you start chatting to someone and you've, you're ma- incredibly interested in something, you don't just give them all of the facts and the whole story. Like you don't, or you don't just tangent and tangent and tangent and follow the, the thread off because most people don't like that. And it, so we learn to actually hold back. And this also relates to the strengths because it well deployed. These things are huge strengths. But when we've learned to mask them that way, we kind of associate them with being problematic per se, rather than contextually just something that's not always welcome. And so we tend then, then we suppress them entirely and we don't have access to them. So I think that idea of unpicking and kind of developing the strengths is, is about like working out where am I inhibiting and how could I use this thing? Because it's about expressing yourself and expressing what you, what you kind of are experiencing, but doing so skillfully. You know, in, in the medical context, you might suddenly have a huge amount of medical information at hand, but that's not something you necessarily want to, you know, give a lecture to a patient on for a quarter of an hour if, if it comes up, but it might be really useful in another context. And so that, like being able to moderate that and knowing when it's a thing and knowing how to work with it and how to express it well is, is a real part of the, the kind of developing this skill. I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. I'm really interested in this thing about masking and camouflaging. And I know, Matthew, you work with a lot of high-functioning professional people who are having issues in their workplace, probably because of their neurodivergence and because of the job as well. I know you, you coach them a lot. I know that people come to you with lots of different things. Can you see any themes in the types of issues that people are coming to you for help with? Yeah, I, I think... If I boil it down in, in, in these contexts, like the, the core thing that most people I work with experience in some way or another is a combination of frustration and anxiety that can manifest in all sorts of different ways. But very often it's rooted in that, that common experience. And that comes from seeing the world differently, seeing different things in the world, seeing different opportunities and different threats. And the difficulty with that is when you're working with others, that means everyone ignoring opportunities that you, that are obvious to you and the frustration that comes with that. And equally blundering into threats that are obvious to you and the anxiety that comes with that. 
And so, yeah, that can, that can manifest in all sorts of different ways. Some people experience a kind of gap between their, their level of performance, what they, what they think their level of performance, however, how much, however much approval people get in the outside world, that can often feel hollow. Um, it doesn't necessarily feel secure. Um, and that's, that's partly, um, a masking thing as well is we learn to kind of separate and show a very partial image of ourselves, then praise doesn't necessarily feel like it belongs to us when we get it, because we know we're presenting a partial image. And and so uh, it can feel like a gap between, in your potential, knowing that you're, there's something else that you're, or a sense that you're missing something. It can lead to, quite often people have a kind of, creative, unconventional side that doesn't get expressed or feels like they can't get that out in the world and they can be incredibly technically able, professionally able, but that they're, that feels stifling. It doesn't feel like self-expression in any sense of the word and that they can't express themselves as, a, as their professional identity. And finally, it can also manifest as being torn between doing stuff that's intrinsically rewarding, that feels good, that gives you energy, that you enjoy, and doing stuff that's materially rewarding, that gets you paid and gets you praise, um, an external kind of um, approval. And that barrier, you know, the difficulty with those two things being entirely separate is whenever you're doing one, you're not doing the other because they're both needed. That always feels like plate spinning. And so this, this idea of constantly chasing reward, whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic, is one of the other common experiences in this space. And it, it's because we've learned that this, our inner world, our experiencing isn't really okay to share with others and isn't of value. And in the long run, the work is integrating the two. And is that more difficult for people with neurodiversity? Divergence than it is for, I'm air quotes, normal people. I think a, mo a lot of people experience some not complete overlap, I should say, between the, um, between intrinsic and extrinsic reward. However, the system is set up to broadly direct people towards professions where they will experience a reasonable degree of both. If they're, if you're lucky enough to get a decent education and get all of the support that, that that comes with you know if you if you're if you're fortunate enough to get to go to university that's kind of what that process is supposed to be delivering accepting that there are plenty of people who are marginalized and that path doesn't work but that that is kind of what that's that so it, it gives you at least a most people a decent degree of overlap in that space for a lot of neurodivergent people, it doesn't. You don't get so it, it's very, barely any overlap or no overlap at all, and that starts very early. You know that that, that that's often a, a, an early, it, it, sometimes preschool, but definitely schooling upwards experience. And if we are, again, it's an extra risk with the twice exceptionality. We learn to put all of our approval. Uh, we, we we basically learn. Okay, my self approval, my self judgment is faulty, clearly, because it doesn't line up. So we learn not to trust that at all. 
and we learn just to trust other people's approval. And if we're bright, we can get a lot of it. We never have the situation where we can't get good grades, where we can't like, we may not like enjoy the process. We may not intrinsically like want to do that, but extrinsically we're rewarded for it. And over time can separate us quite profoundly from, from our intrinsic motivation. So it is a particular risk. It, it's, it's, a, it's a risk for neurodiversity and it's a particular risk for twice exceptionality. So essentially you're just doing what everybody else expects you to, what you're rewarded for, but actually you're not what you really love. You're masking stuff and what you really love is over here and no one really rewards or appreciates that. And then that's quite a lot of dissonance then to, to live with. Right? It's a huge amount of dissonance to live with. And I think, you know, we, we, we don't talk about the mental health consequences you know, neurodivergence is quite significantly impactful on a on a life scale uh adult diagnosis of adhd is associated with a 13 year reduced life expectancy which makes it more impactful than smoking 20 cigarettes a day you know and if we think about how we talk to people and societally we treat people who who smoke 20 cigarettes a day according to the latest ons survey only 22 percent of autistic adults in work at all and that comes with its own set of you know the, the 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 stress and all of these so this life expectancy reduction it's partly in self-harm and risk-taking quite uh, extreme risk-taking behaviors it's partly in psychosocial stress and the ways of working with that which can manifest as compulsive behavior and addiction they can manifest as chronic physiological stress which obviously you know increase risk of all sorts of different things. A big, a, a chunk of it is not getting help for treatable conditions. And that's because sometimes services are inaccessible or relatively inaccessible to us in a variety of ways, partly because sometimes the presentation of those conditions is unstereotypical. When we are also neurodivergent, we might experience them differently and therefore report them differently and therefore get them diagnosed. So there's a whole raft of reasons for this impact. None of them directly related to the neurology. They're all kind of external systemic reasons. So this, this impact is, is something we kind of have to work with and understand. And I think, you know, both for you and I, it's a very interesting position to be in, to be neurodivergent and understand this and be on the pointy end of some of this and to be working with people around this and be talking to professionals, medical professionals, about these kind of consequences and trying to work with others to, to reduce the consequences, the systemic consequences. And again, thinking back to some of the stereotypes around how we cope, how we manage, particularly in high stress roles and the maladaptive coping mechanisms that people often adopt, they can be significant. Doctors with substance dependency is kind of a cliche at this point. And there's, there's a raft of other behaviors as well. And I think we often overlook the supposedly, in inverted commas, good behaviors because we're very moral about what we think of as addiction. It's all moralized. But actually, compulsive behaviors of things that we, that are, that are good to do, you know, that have some benefit. If we overdo them, that can be just as harmful. I know an awful lot of highly successful neurodivergent people who are compulsive well compulsive workers for often often addicted to work 
that often a maladaptive way of coping with this stuff. Though I should say maladaptive itself is judgmental, I think. I tend to prefer to think of these things as what they are is coping with things in the moment the least bad way possible that's available to us at the moment with all the resources that we have. Those might be psychological resources, those might be knowledge resources, those might be external environmental resources, but we choose the, we always choose the least bad option. What we actually have to do is move the situation so that there are some good options, not just least bad options, because the, you know, those least bad options can create a negative feedback loop. And that's what makes them so problematic. But I want to be clear when I say, you know, that, that there is no judgment in following these things. Very often we inherit these things from, from authority figures, from parents, from mentors, because they shared traits with us and they learned to cope that way because they, that's what got them through. And then you just carry that on and either it's not helpful anymore or it was never that helpful in the first place, but we carry them on anyway. Yeah, I, mean, I love the way that you said, you know, things aren't good or bad, they're just helpful or not helpful, really. You know, for example, glugging a bottle of wine every night, we've labeled as bad. But I know lots of people use that to turn their brains off. And, you know, that is, that is sometimes seems like the least bad option, but other people just binge on chocolate or watch Netflix or go and do huge, huge amounts of exercise. But exercise, that's a, that's a good thing. So that's it. Or, or working hard overwork well that's a good thing because you're just committed aren't you but actually all it is is you trying to cope with stuff and and work things out as well as you can you know i i love what you said about the way that you have adapted and then these things seem to be like a superpower because you have to work on them and i can see that in myself being quite chaotic at times and i've to learn how to organize myself all of the work I do with this podcast is because I've struggled so much, um, only just been diagnosed with ADHD. And that makes a lot of sense because I love these ideas and connecting stuff. And also, you know, I have struggled in jobs where they have to be very, very detail oriented and sit still for a long time and this and that and the other thing as well. But what I wanted to ask you, Matthew, what types of things are really, really helpful coping mechanisms because there are things that are more unhelpful even without any judgment it, it, in no one's world is it helpful to drink a bottle of wine at night it's not helpful for your health it's not helpful for for you so what have you found works for you and works for your clients that you work with as well yeah ultimately what we want to do is move towards being in a situation where we where we can play to our strengths primarily and where our weaknesses aren't a huge liability. And that means creating a context where that's true, which we can do multiple ways. And there, there are various tools and various approaches we have available at our disposal, depending on, on, on what our particular needs are. I, I don't actually take scheduled work until, till midday. So I do get up later than most people and I work later than most people. That has advantages because I'm based in the UK and it means I work with people in the US. So, because I overlap quite significantly with their working hours. So that whole kind of space is, is one of the, um, it, it, you know, thinking about like, where, where is my difference and advantage? 
because that's the other area of this is is actually we don't necessarily benefit from being exactly the same as everyone else. There are advantages in difference too, and figuring out a situation that's like, oh well, well, does where does this work? But it's moving towards that point, understanding, you know, moving towards a practice and a set of things that support us and play to our strengths. I mean, that's great advice for anyone. Like, you don't even have to be neurodivergence. Play to your strengths is one of the main pieces of advice I give when we talk about career development and, and resilience. Because if you can get into a job where you're doing more of what you love and you're good at, then actually you're going to be much happier. And what I loved about what you said was find your exceptionality and then really, really play to that. What if your exceptionality is just really left field of what is sort of expected in the role that you've got? I think this is really interesting. This comes up a lot, actually. There are, there are, there are different ways to, to engage with this. So one of the ways is to accept that, that you have a domain of practice that's important to you, but is not part of your professional work directly. That can be incredibly rewarding and incredibly helpful. The strong example for this is the one thing that predicts Nobel Prize winners more than anything else is having a significantly developed practice of playing music. And those aren't directly related, and they kind of stay separate. So you can have a practice, so as long as you've got the space in your life to follow the practice, keeping it separate can work. And I think the other thing around this is, and this is where this crosses over with my innovation work, is actually if you combine things together in an unexpected way, you can meet a different need. Anything in this space, choose something that feels more exciting than it does scary. Even if that means doing a really, really small thing and starting with that, like, actually, this feels good to me is a really good way to start exploring that as as slowly as you need, because it can be incredibly challenging. And I think all of this is great advice. Like I said just now, you know, whether you are neurodivergent or not, because there's never ever going to be one job that hits all your needs for connection, for this, for creativity, for that. And if you can find that outside of your work, that's absolutely brilliant. So if you're going to look for the perfect job, you're never, ever, ever going to find it. But perhaps it's, it's, it's harder to find that, uh, to get that, like you said, as much as um, maybe other people would if you are neurodivergent. For people that are listening to this, that, that would be, air quotes, normal, how can they change what they do at work to really help their colleagues who are neurodivergent? Thank you. I think that's a really important question, actually. We tend to assume with any difference that, that the person who's different then bears all of the cost and uh, working with this. But if we look through this lens of, oh, you get, well, you get something exceptional out of working with this person, then maybe you can put in, you know, there's, there's value in putting in some effort. So yeah, I think it's, it's a really important and under explored thing. So. The primary things are really building your own awareness and skills and understanding and finding understanding with other people, reaching other people who experience the word differently to you. And 
that can be a really, really difficult thing if you're not used to it. One of the difficult things that we as neurodivergent people have to understand is we're regularly crossing that bridge. We're regularly encountering this. But not everyone is. And so actually a lot of those skills, it's hard to build and it's scary. And so actually, you know, experiencing different perceptions, different ways of seeing the world and working with integrating those and understanding those and connecting with those and reflecting on your own position and your own understanding. Where is, where is your position actually? Because we all have one. It's just that we tend not to notice it if it's the default. And so, so you can then know where you're coming from in the conversation as well is hugely helpful. Another side of this is being willing to engage with some of the work in bridging the gaps. So the classic thing is like, is to say, well, what do you need? And that's actually a really difficult question in a, in a, in an organizational context is because that needs someone to actually understand all of the stuff that you understand as well. So being willing to try stuff out and also being willing to be to, to be wrong and to admit that you're operating in a space of limited knowledge because we all have limits to our knowledge and to our awareness. If you work with someone who is a specific neuro-minority, it can be helpful to understand that condition, though with a big grain of salt. The idea that we are, that the conditions predict very much about us as individuals isn't is is kind of out there in broader society, but it's not very true. We don't tend to fit the stereotypes terribly well. They're not that predictive. So it can be helpful. And maybe it's like, you know, when you come up with something, it's like, oh, is this what it is? Rather than this is what it is, is the really important thing. Thank you. Lots of helpful stuff there. So Matthew as we just finish off, what would your three top tips be for anybody who feels that, you know, with a diagnosis or without a diagnosis, that they might be a little bit different from from the norm? And actually, I think there's possibly quite a lot of the listeners here who've always felt, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly responding exactly like like other people here. What do you, what would your main tips be for them for navigating the world? and the world of work with perhaps a little bit more ease. I really like that focus on ease as well, because that's very often what we what we don't experience if we're neurodivergent. Mm. We can do the performance, but it doesn't feel easy yeah. ever. I think the first tip is to get curious about yourself and your experiencing of the world. You don't have to use the medicalized lens of specific diagnosis, but it can be very helpful. Research suggests that the younger you are, you get a diagnosis, the better your life outcomes. If you're neurodivergent, it's a direct relationship. Um, so whilst there are some drawbacks to diagnosis, it seems for most people, it's mostly helpful, more helpful than it is a, 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 an impediment. But that has to be a personal decision. I think just doing the self-development work, doing the like self-exploratory work, where are my strengths? Where is my joy? Where is my, you know, where is my interest? Reconnecting with that. 
that that's particularly important if we're struggling with mental health issues, as many of us do. And I think that connection with needs, what are my needs that aren't met? And that can be a very difficult question to answer if they've never been met. I think if we have organizational authority, particularly the more senior we are, the more important this is, is being open about it because it makes it easier for other people. There are a lot of people who are either don't know they're neurodivergent or are um, kind of who have a secret, who have their diagnosis a secret, and that's perfectly valid. But if you have organization, you know, you have authority, it's worth considering whether you can use that authority to make your life and other people's lives easier. And so talking about the experiences of it, sharing those experiences are really important. And advocating for your own needs and other people's needs from that experience. One of the big reasons that it's so important that neurodivergent people are given better access to work and to the profession is because when we're fully represented, it actually makes those services much, much better for us. Unfortunately, the history of psychiatry is not great in terms of its treatment of neurodivergent people. And one of the big things that improves and has, has improved is making sure that people are represented and that people understand and can advocate for those experiences. So being willing to advocate for, you know, the needs of people around us, um, is, is another major part of this. And I think there's just one more question I'd like to ask you because first point about getting curious about yourself and if you think that might be helpful getting a diagnosis I think a lot of people get stuck on that where can you go that's really helpful to get a diagnosis and like you know I'm asking this you know having worked as a GP and it's not always really obvious where people can can find this out for themselves even as doctors first of all if you're female if you're twice exceptional if you're autistic and ADHD, all of those are risk factors for not being diagnosed because you don't present stereotypically. Also, as I mentioned, that having a particular interest in people is a risk factor for not being diagnosed because you're not supposed to be interested in people. You're not supposed to be. I might be making eye contact because I'm interested in what's going on in someone's head rather than because I'm paying attention to them in the convention. But I'm, but that reads to another person as, oh, they're not, they're not autistically kind of like not making eye contact, aver, aver, averting eye contact. So if we're unstereotypical in our presentation, unfortunately, we are going to have to put together a case. It's not going to be spotted for us. And I think working on that experience, like, where, where something is, feels off, feels strange, following that, having a look at other people's experience and seeing where you resonate with that strongly. It's like, are there any people out there who you're like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's me and seeing who else resonates with that. The other thing I'd say is following up any kind of mysteries in your experience. Do you have 
pervasive, like low energy. Do you have migraine, stress migraine when there isn't a, a, a really obvious external cause? You're not going through a particularly high number of life stresses at the moment. You know, do you have any other differences in experience, anomaly in your experience? Being like, well, okay, what, what could explain those? And just that, 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 that curiosity, I think. Also looking at the things that you really enjoy, like really enjoy. Being like, okay, where do those point? What strengths do those point to? And what situations are those potentially associated with as well? And I think, you know, one of the things is if you are wondering about this and it's a regular wonder, it's definitely worth following. There is a saying in the community that neurotypical people don't tend to go through life wondering if they're autistic. So it is definitely worth following up. And even if you don't, you know, it doesn't meet a specific criteria or a specific diagnosis, the, the experience of exploring it is worth it. The knowledge about yourself is worth it. The knowledge about how your experience and your 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 kind of way of being in the world differs from others, which can be incredibly useful in explaining and kind of triangulating against all of this stuff. And then having a having a label kind of can help, but it, it's really that journey of understanding that's the most valuable thing. One one of the challenges around this is actually there are very few support options for neurodivergent professionals. We're starting to see the emergence of neurodiversity groups within um, various large organizations and professional bodies. So if you're a member of a professional body, I, I'm chair of Neurodiverse IT within BCS, the Chartered Institute of IT, for example. So check out whatever professional accreditations you have and see whether there's a community group run by and for neurodivergent people within that. Similarly, if you work for an organization, there are an increasing number of NHS trusts I know who have star neurodiversity groups. So head along to that. See whether it feels like you. See whether you meet people there who you're like, oh yeah, okay, we are experiencing the world. <laughs> there is something here. There are a number of different tests online. Don't take any single test seriously, too seriously. But if a lot of them point in a similar direction, it's probably worth exploring. One of the interesting things, a lot of neurodivergent people, when they tell people close to them that they have the condition, is people go, yeah, you're like, I think, I think I've been like masked. Because I was like, I've got ADHD and autism. People are like, yeah. It can be quite a relief, can't it? I remember when I was diagnosed a couple of years ago now with ADHD, it's a bit of a shock. First of all, I had to go through a bit of a process with it. But actually, in terms of helping me understand what made me tick, going, oh, that's why, that's why. It was actually absolutely brilliant and so, so helpful. So I would encourage people, like you said, just start to explore it. And I do know that there is a Facebook group for neurodivergent doctors. And so that might be worth joining. We'll have to dig out the link to that. And 
I guess then you can just say to people, well, I think I might need to go and see a specialist. Who would you recommend? Do you know anyone? And there are all types of coaches and psychologists and doctors out there who who do specialise in this sort of thing. So it's it's a matter of finding the right professional, but you need to do a bit of research, don't you? And absolutely. And I, I, I work with people around this navigating the, the, the diagnosis process because there are so many pathways and so many options and it's not actually a necessarily a desirable thing for everyone. So having Having someone who understands the the world, if if it's helpful to you to kind of have someone to talk to, yeah, there are people out there, myself included, who can who can talk you through, so you can weigh up all of the different stuff and work out whether it's wor- what's worth doing and in what priority. And I think in the knowledge that what a diagnosis or what more understanding is going to mean is that you just understand yourself a bit more. It doesn't change who you are. It doesn't make you a different person. All it does, it just connects you with other people that experience life in the same way and give you some tools probably that other people have used that we know work that you can then use just to, like I said before, move through life with a bit more ease, hopefully. Absolutely. So Matthew, you've already mentioned this, but I know that you do a lot of work coaching and supporting people with neurodivergency or who are exploring whether they have it or not. If people want to get hold of you, how, how can they do that? The main things, yeah, neurodiversity. I also run a community called Curious Being, which is intended as a space really for this discovery and exploration. I do uh, one-to-one work yeah, with people really around finding, navigating this whole process, getting the support that, that you need, using the technology and the tools and the knowledge that we have from psychology to be able to play to your strengths some more, develop those capacities. And I work with organizations who want to be better places for neurodivergent people and who want to really benefit from this. If an organization is interested in improving its support for neurodivergent people, then I'm always very happy to work with them either in facilitation, one-to-one with their staff, or uh, do talks and write as well. So I should say I do one-to-one work with, um, with people who are supporting neurodivergent people whether they, they think of themselves as neurodivergent or not. People can go to um, matthewberringer.com forward slash links to get all of that stuff and other publications and articles and bits and bobs. So uh, anything that you'd like, you can find me on LinkedIn as well on that link. Thanks so much, Matthew. We'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can get hold of you. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And you know, this was really in response. I had a lot of um, emails in saying, please, can we talk about it? So if people have been listening, have got any specific questions or anything else that they'd like to explore around this topic, please let us know. And Matthew, would you come back again to talk to us in the future? I'd love to come back and ask some, answer some questions. The questions are always my favourite bit. And okay, love to. there we are. Challenge. If you guys listening will email in with your Q&A, then we'll get Matthew back on to answer them. So thank you, Matthew. Have a good rest of day and we'll speak with you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.